0: Tonight's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. You can find it on page 830 of the Bibles in the pews, or it'll be on screen. That's Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her.
1: Good evening, and everybody. Please do have that part of God's word open in front of you. Uh, We'll explore it together. In many ways, a super familiar passage, isn't it? You know, we come to Christmas and we center on these passages because they're beautiful and they're good, uh, but they also can become quite familiar. And so we're going to explore it. I don't profess to have any kind of amazing new things to say. We're going to center ourselves on uh, the Word of God uh, and see how it is that the Holy Spirit is going to shape us as the people of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get stuck in. Our good and our gracious God, together we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the really familiar parts, that you are always in the business of showing us who you are, how it is you've entered the world in the Lord Jesus, how it is you're redeeming the world, and what it means to follow us as your people. I pray by the power of your spirit you speak through me, despite my weaknesses, and that you work in your people here in this room and across the screen. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is the, uh, the Christmas season, the decorations perhaps are up in your house, uh, the carols are being sung. As we say, it is the most wonderful time of the year, and it is a wonderful time of the year, but it's also a very full time of the year. You know, I'm kind of feeling like there's a lot uh, going on, our calendar gets full very quick, as I chat to people, it's like there's just a lot of things happening. Generally good things, uh, but a lot of them, even if it is like that mad rush at work uh, trying to finish, you uni students are like, what rush, we're done, how good is that? But the workers are slaving on, uh, keeping going. But we have lots of events to go to and lots of generally good things, but it's full. So as we come together as God's people, what we want to center on is the central thing of Christmas, which is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus came to this earth as a little baby boy. Right? There's a couple of little babies that are in this service, and you think, God as a man like that grown to be the saviour and we're remembering and centering ourselves on jesus and we're going to do it through the gospel of luke so luke if you're familiar with it uh it is a gospel that talks to us about jesus and it's explicitly written to people like you and i people who aren't jewish if you are jewish welcome again but most of us are not jewish um we're certainly not first century jewish and we're people who've heard the message of jesus Uh, who've believed in it, but perhaps want a bit of certainty about it. And as we read the beginning of Luke, that's that's his explicit purpose in writing. So we can know the confidence of the things that we've been taught. Specifically what it is, or who the person of Jesus is, and why he came. And so as we look at the beginning of the narrative, it's all about the Jesus' birth scene, or his infancy. What kind of happens around his birth. And what we're struck with is these awesome angelic announcements. And when I say awesome, I mean like not like cool and exciting, which it is, but like awe-inspiring. Like to see an angel is like mind-boggling kind of stuff. Now, we're focusing on verses 26 through to 38. But as you look at the first verse, it said in the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy... What that does is it takes us back to the first couple of verses, verses 5 through 26, of where we hear about uh, Elizabeth, particularly through her husband Zechariah, where we get the first angelic announcement. The same angel, Gabriel, he comes. And what we see here is he comes to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest. So think kind of upper echelon of Jewish society, very well versed in the scriptures, teacher of the law in the temple, center of Jewish society. The angel, Gabriel, comes to him and announces this new baby to be born. Now, it's crazy because Elizabeth is old and she is barren, which means basically impossible for her to have children. But God is going to graciously open her womb, and we're going to uh, the baby to be born will be John the Baptist. However, Zechariah, the priest in the center of Jerusalem, is not very confident about that. And so he kind of questions the angel. Basically, he doesn't trust. Uh, the angel makes him mute until the baby is born. And that's kind of an important backdrop as we then encounter how the angel, uh, how Mary responds to the same angel, Gabriel. So let's have a read from verse 26. Uh, continue on before we, we left off. So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, far up in the north of Israel, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. So we're confronted with Gabriel, his second appearance. Um, And what we see here is an angel who is very powerfully the direct messenger of God. Whenever we see an angel, that's always what's going on. Powerful, direct messenger of God. It's like if, and he directly speaks the words of God, as if God were to be there saying them. Say, like we have the Chinese ambassador to Australia, the words that he or she says to Australia is as if the Chinese people or the Chinese government is directly saying it to the Australians. The angel of the Lord is directly the messenger of God. Now he speaks to Mary. Mary is a young woman, probably in her teenage years. She's a virgin and she's engaged to be married. Without trying to kind of state the obvious, a virgin means she hasn't had sex. It is impossible for her to have a baby. Kind of abstinence is 100% contraception. There is no baby on the scene here at all for her. But she's engaged. She's engaged to be married. Now, that, in that culture, it's a little bit different to ours. When we have someone who's engaged, we think, well, they still can break it off. In that culture, it was much more legally binding. They weren't living together, so therefore they weren't sleeping together. But they were still uh, legally bound to one another. Now, she's bound to this man named Joseph. He's a descendant of David. If we're familiar with the Bible, we're thinking king. This potential, his son was going to come and be this new reigning ruler. Joseph is in his line. Now, the other bit of relevant information here, it's set in Nazareth. Now, if you've grown up in church, like, oh, Nazareth, that's where Jesus is from. Cool. If you were reading this for the first time, Nazareth, are like, What? As some people in John say, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Right? This is literally the backwaters of Israel. Um, nothing good ever seems to come from there. A bit of a pointless town. Right? You, cert, I won't chuck an Australian town under the bus, but you think of like a kind of pointless Australian town? That's, you can imagine Nazareth as that. Backwaters. Now, we didn't go through the Zechariah narrative in full at all, but if we were to contrast that. With the Mary narrative, we see so many differences, so many contrasts. Zechariah is in the temple, center of Jewish society. Mary is on the outskirts, in a bit of a no-name-nothing town. Zechariah, a priest, up there, Jewish society. Mary, no title, no position. Zechariah, a married man. Mary, an unmarried woman. In that culture, distinct social difference. Zechariah is asked to believe in something that God has done before in bringing a baby out of a barren woman. Mary is asked to believe in something that God has never done before. Yet, Mary is seemingly the nobody who's going to carry the Son of God. That's, that's incredible. The most, She's... The epitome of what it looks like to be humble, a humble setting, a humble person. What this screams out to us is that God uses the humble. God uses the humble. He loves to use those who are humble in spirit. If we were going to, like, kind of conquer the world in some way, shape, or form, we're thinking, all right, let's use the powers that be. Right back then, maybe the temple establishment or the might of Rome. Today we 're thinking governments, social media influences, something that's going to kind of instantly or powerfully take over the world. Not God. He uses the humble, He uses the lowly. You might think of yourself or think of other people as lowly or powerless. You may think of yourself as insignificant, unimportant. It seems that God delights in using those kinds of people. The announcement of Jesus to this Woman named Mary in the backskirts of Israel shows us that God wants to use the humble who are receptive to him. To so be receptive to the work of God. That is the kind of person that he's interested in seeing his good purposes be lived out. That's a humble setting that we are thrown into here. Now the young woman Mary, she hears this awesome angelic announcement. We hadn't read it before, but I'll read it again. The angel comes to her out of nowhere, right? Not knocking at the door. He's in her presence straight away. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary, naturally, is troubled. What is this word? Why is this angel coming to me? But the angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He'll be the great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants uh, and his kingdom forever. Like that is an amazing announcement. Uh, We're used to it. But you imagine being Mary in that moment, having that kind of announcement. That is absolutely incredible. In the no-name town, this woman is going to have the son of God. You imagine some of you in this moment have had children. Imagine you haven't had a child. You're a virgin. An angel comes to you and says, okay, you're going to have a baby who's going to end poverty, end climate change, uh, it's going to end all wars, and it's going to bring victory to Australia in the FIFA World Cup. You'd be laughing, like absolutely no chance. What the angel was announcing to Mary is greater than that. It is incredible. Now, the the angel has said to Mary that she has found favor with God. The literal word in Greece is more aligned with grace. Angel has said it twice. What is on display here is that Mary is a recipient of God's grace. She doesn't earn it. We're not told anything that has meant that she is qualified in some way for this position by what she has done. God has seen her and chosen her to be the carrier of his son. Like you think of baby announcements at this point i've had three kids we've done small baby announcements here sure you think of people that pop the balloons and confetti goes everywhere like this is incredible kind of announcements it's a baby boy his name is jesus it means that he comes and he saves he's the son of the most high we preach it all the time all the time but you hear this for the first time this title the son of the most high is only given of god this is a divine title He's going to be the king of the throne of David. i briefly mentioned it before, but when you're thinking the throne of David, uh, in the Bible, our minds get cast back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, a thousand years ago, where God, through the prophet, said that David is going to have a son who's going to have this kingdom. It's going to rule over all of Israel and over all the earth. Here he is. This is the son who's come. And the beauty of what we see here is that grace is both both announced and experienced. Grace is announced and experienced. It's announced to Mary in the sense of she's literally just hearing it. Uh, She's embracing it. She's hearing that something is uh, impossible. Uh, But she, she knows it to be true. It's announced by God to her. But not only is grace announced, it's experienced by her. The grace of God is literally now going to grow inside her womb. She's heard it. She knows it. She's felt it in her being. And what we remember and what we, you and I, celebrate at Christmas is very much the same thing. We hear the announcement of the grace of God. And when we respond to it, we experience the grace of God. And so as we go out to the streets with our friends and our families and our neighbors, we're announcing it and we're inviting them to experience it. Now, Mary obviously finds this confronting to her. So this is a, a mind boggling announcement. But she has a very purposeful response. She responds with a question. Now, it's a very fair question. And she says, How will this be? Not how can this be? How will this be? Because I am a virgin. Now she's obviously seeing this not as a future thing, right? This is an immediate thing. She's recognizing that as uh, something that's going to happen right now. God has literally said something which is impossible for her, impossible. Now her claiming to be a virgin is not saying, "Well, look how holy I am." She's saying, that there's a big barrier here, God. Like, you got to do. Are you going to do something? How will this happen?" Mary is asking in a way, God, okay, I believe you, but I've got no idea how this is going to happen. I trust you, but how will it be? So the angel responds with both an explanation and a sign. The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Then the sign, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in a sixth month. For no word of the Lord, of God, will ever fail. Now the explanation is that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Luke, he gives us no details. He just says that's what's going to happen. Mary is given no extra details. That's just what is going to happen. It's just that the baby will not be a result of some kind of sexual encounter. No, with man, not with God. No, God himself that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary and place this baby within her. The boy of Jesus, somehow fully human and fully God, growing in the womb of Mary. That is something that isn't natural. That is supernatural, beyond human potential. The impossible will be possible with God. Now, the angel also graciously gives an explanation to Mary. Mary. Uh, He gives a sign, a way to kind of continue to help her to trust, it seems. The sign is that even Elizabeth, her cousin or her auntie, a relative of some form, who previously is impossible for her to have children for some reason, uh, she is barren, God is now opening up her womb, and she is going to conceive. Mary doesn't ask for this sign. God just graciously gives it to her. They just love the care. The concern, the kind of beauty of God in this moment. His word was enough for her to trust. She trusted just based on the angel coming. But God gives her a little bit more, more to help her ground her trust to continue forward. And what this whole narrative is pointing us towards is that God is the promise keeping God of the impossible. God is the promise keeping God of the impossible. He's promised a man to come from the third chapter of your Bible. From Genesis 3, when humanity walked away from God, rejected God, there was a a prophecy in there, a hint towards a person coming, the offspring of the woman who is going to come and redeem. Then we've seen that 2 Samuel 7 thing, and there's other things without psalms. God has been promising and promising and has been developing this promise about this Savior who is going to come, and now he's here. God is trustworthy. There's a commentator named Bock. He says, we can trust God to perform his promises. He will do it in his own time, in his own way, but it will come to pass. Or perhaps if you like a more simple way to remember it from our Moreland College principal, Ross Clifford. God may be slow, but he's never late. God may be slow, but he's never late. And at Christmas, we remember, we celebrate, we worship God because his son was sent into the world. Son sent into the world uh, to save us in God's perfect timing. He didn't send him now, he didn't send him 3,000 years ago, he sent him 2,000 years ago. At that time, in that place, God's perfect timing. We can trust God to keep his promises. We can trust God to keep his promises on Monday morning. You can trust God to keep his promises on Wednesday afternoon, on Saturday at a party on Saturday when you're at home by yourself, you can always trust God to keep his promises, especially the seemingly impossible ones. So what are the promises that you want to hold on to? The promises from God's word. I'll mention a few. The promises of no crying, no tears, no pain. As it says in Revelation of a new body in 1 Corinthians 15. You need to hold on to that promise, the promise of eternity. Remember the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you, as it says in Deuteronomy and Hebrews. The promise that nothing, no one, no depths, no power, no angels, no demons, no heights, no principalities of this world can pluck you from the Father's hand, as it says in Romans. Maybe you'll hold on to that one. Maybe the promise that you are loved, that you are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That just says it everywhere. Or any other promise that God has in his word. God's word never fails. If he has said it, he will do it. God may be slow, but he's never late. He will make the impossible possible. We can trust him, and we live in that confidence. Now, with that all said, we're going to pause here for a moment and dive a little bit deeper into the virgin birth. The virgin birth, uh, or perhaps more appropriately, the virgin conception. Um, it's a key thing that we remember at Christmas, and we're going to spend a moment kind of considering the issues and particularly the significance to us. Now, I did a bunch of research for this back in, in college and then throughout this week, and can I say, is it an absolute minefield of theological and historical mess? And here, there, and everywhere, it's got controversy and all sorts of ideas in it. And so we're gonna look a little bit into that darkness tonight, and I'm gonna just kind of paint some broad strokes and some particular things for us to hold on to. But as I go through it, if there's particular things that stand out to you or you wanna dive into it a little bit more, send in an SMS after the service, come see me after the service, I can point you in the direction uh, of some of the, the real detail uh, that you can go into. But I'll paint for us what in this moment I think is going to be helpful. Firstly, the issues. The issues that are at play around the doctrine of the virgin birth. When we say doctrine, we're talking the central teaching, the central beliefs. The first thing is that next to the resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth is highly controversial, highly debated. It is the second most probably contested miracle in the Bible. But the Bible clearly says it. People believe it, but they put it up to debate as to what it actually means. To kind of fast forward to a bit more modern times, the debate centers around uh, those who want to see God working in very supernaturalistic ways or naturalistic ways, how God relates to the world. Basically, uh, does God act only in ways that can be understood by science or understood by rationality? Um, God created the laws, so he works within those laws. Should we only understand God in that way? Or is God supernatural? Well, obviously supernatural, but does he work in supernatural ways? And people look at the virgin birth through those kind of uh, two lenses. Now, we believe that God acts in supernatural ways. He does and can do whatever he needs for his good purposes. And we're seeing the virgin birth as a supernatural miracle. Now, in addition to that, there's a couple of things that we need to hold true as we understand, as we hear about different things that go along with a virgin birth. I'm going to summarize a bunch of them. Uh, These are things that can be affirmed by just a simple reading of Scripture. The first set relates to Mary. Mary is not sinless. As it says in verse 46 of chapter 1, My spirit rejoices in my Saviour. Mary is sinful. She herself is in need of a saviour. She's not sinless. Mary did not have sex with God. Mary did not have sex with an angel. Mary was not a virgin for her whole life. After Jesus is born, she, presumably with Joseph, has other children. Um, we, We get four recorded brothers of Jesus and an unknown number of sisters. And the fifth one is that Mary had a normal vaginal delivery. Jesus didn't just somehow magically pass through the womb. It was normal in that regard. Now, in in addition to those issues, there's, there's two truths that are worth highlighting in general. The first is that the virgin birth does not mean that Jesus came into existence at that point. It doesn't mean Jesus came into existence at this point. Rather, the second person of the Trinity, he existed prior to Jesus the man, but came into the world as a human in this point. As it says in John chapter 1, the word who existed was Jesus before uh, time became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He existed from eternity past. He exists to eternity future, became incarnate as the man, Jesus. The second thing is that the virgin birth is literally a historical event. I kind of pointed to that uh, before. We read the Bible. We have so many reasons to believe it to be authoritative. And we read it as the authors intended us to read it. As the first people would have read it, that's how we want to understand it. If you're a first century Gentile Jewish person reading this, you're going, oh, okay, literally Mary conceived as a virgin. And so that's how we read it too. Now I said there's a whole minefield. I summarize a whole bunch of things there. If you want to look into that more deeply. Like I kind of opened a door, looked in the dark mess and then closed it again. But if you want to investigate that a bit more, uh, let me know after the service. But there are some really significant things for us. Because if this is in there, we could just believe it to be true and that is enough in some regard. But what does it mean? Why is it significant? Why should we believe in the virgin birth? How should we respond? Now, one of those theologians who navigates all these issues is named millard erickson he surveys them and i think he gives a really well balanced well-rounded answer uh, which sets us up for the significance there's a quote on the screen Uh, i'll read it out he says the virgin birth is not mentioned in the evangelistic sermons in the book of acts right you look through acts when um, in any part of the new testament aside from matthew 1 and luke 1 it's not mentioned that well m- may mean, then, that it's not one of the primary doctrines, as in it's not necessary for salvation. However, it is a subsidiary or supporting doctrine. It helps create or sustain belief in the indispensable doctrines or reinforce the truths found in other doctrines. So it is important. It supports those things which we hold to be essential. And then he goes on, Like the resurrection is it at once a historical event, a doctrine... And an evidence. So to kind of highlight what he's saying by subsidiary um, and supporting of, there's three things that the virgin birth affirms without necessarily proving. The first one is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the doctrine of incarnation, Jesus, God becoming human flesh. Now, God could have done it another way. He's God, he could have chosen, not the virgin birth, just plucked Jesus into the earth but he didn't he didn't choose that he chose that he should be born of the virgin mary that's his perfect wisdom that is the perfect way for him to go about it to consider another way is inferior now jesus is the second part is that jesus is eternal future past future present he's pre-existent we touched on that before and the third thing is that jesus is sinless Says that he is holy. Not only is Jesus free from sin, but he is the first fruits of a new humanity, conceived of a woman, but born of God, but from God alone. He is holy from the very beginning. And I realize they're kind of big concepts, uh, but they're on the screen there, there for you. Now, if the virgin birth doesn't completely prove these things, it certainly supports them uh, and makes them hold up to truth. If those are the three things it supports, these are the three things that it certainly affirms. Now, Jesus comes as a saviour, king, saviour. So we want to look at three things. There's a lot of different, I realize, now going through it. Three things, three things, two things, four things. Three things that are, our salvation, that are related to our salvation. Firstly, that salvation is Supernatural. It's not a natural thing for us to be saved. The virgin birth is a reminder that although Jesus came through humanity, it's ultimately from God. A virgin conception is a supernatural miracle. God literally had to intervene in human life, in human society. We can't produce the Savior on our own. There is no Savior that can be found within us. God's salvation is supernatural. Secondly, from the virgin birth, we see that uh, salvation is a free gift, a gift of grace. Mary, nothing particularly important, special about her, just a young woman chosen by God. She certainly manifested the qualities uh, that God um, appreciated in her faith and her dedication, her humility. But there's nothing particular that's going on in her or in the life of Israel that means they're deserving of the grace of God. The virgin birth affirms that our salvation is God's free gift. The third thing is that our salvation is through the unique Jesus. There is only one virgin birth. It only happens once. Jesus comes to this earth as a man once. That same Jesus will come back again. There isn't another Savior to be found. There isn't another Savior to look for. He has come through the Virgin Mary to save us from our sin. He's the only way to be saved. When you kind of put all those things together, what the virgin birth is doing is pointing us to an all powerful God who is saving humanity through Jesus. An all powerful God saving humanity through Jesus. Fully man, fully God. He is my hope. He is our hope. He is the hope of this world. God has to intervene supernaturally, He has to save us by His grace. And the virgin birth points towards that so then what is our response in many ways that kind of shapes our worldview it shapes how we understand god and that's a helpful way of application in and of itself what does it mean for us to respond to god because of this the young woman mary gives us perhaps maybe the perfect response to that next week we look at how she worships god with uh, her song the magnificant we'll look at that next week But her initial response is in verse 38. To the amazing and possible announcement, she responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. That is a humble, faithful response. It is as though she's saying, I don't know what all this means. I don't really fully get it, God, but I trust you. I trust you. Not like, okay, let me wait to see if I'll grow a baby. Let me see if he comes out and he's all good. No, I'll trust you on your word at this point. She accepts and she acts in grace. She may not understand it at full. I think the, God, the beautiful thing about the life of Mary is that she knows what she is called to do is from God. So he will do it in her. God knows that she can do what God asks for. Mary knows when God promises the impossible, she can have faith and she can trust. Friends, God is the hero of Christmas, always. Jesus' coming is the central thing of Christmas. Uh, That's what we center on as people of him. But a second thing that we can learn is be inspired by the person of Mary, this young woman from the middle of Israelite nowhere, who hears the message of Christmas and responds in faith, the very first one. Let us to respond with that Mary-like faith. A faith that trusts God despite the impossible. There is so many things in our life which we think to be impossible. And despite not knowing how, despite not knowing what the possibilities will be, whether we think they're going to be negative for us, whether they're going to be positive for us, we need to hear the Word of God, hear His promises, and act in faith. And when you think it's impossible, trust. That's what the Christmas narrative part of it is compelling us to do. When it seems impossible for justice to flow. When it seems impossible to make disciples of all nations. When it seems impossible to love your neighbor. When it seems impossible to forsake the things of the world when it seems impossible to recognize that God loves you despite your failing, when it seems impossible to place your complete identity in Him, we can have mary like faith and trust in God's promises, even when they seem impossible. Why? Because God is the promise-keeping God of the impossible, who sent the Lord Jesus to us. Let me pray that we are those kind of people that celebrate and announce the grace of God, who receive it for ourselves, and then respond with Mary-like faith. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. And even in the complex, yet also incredibly simple, virgin birth through the young woman Mary, we thank you that's how you chose to send your son into the world. Thank you that he came, that he is our way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. Help us to respond as you've called us to in your word, to lean on your promises for now and into eternity. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.